Well, this morning our scripture lesson comes from Mark chapter 3, verses 20 to 35, and you'll find that on page 838 of your pew Bible. Mark chapter 3, verses 20 through 35. Please read with me. Then he went home, that is Jesus, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul and by the prince of demons. He casts out the demons and he called to them and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? The kingdom is divided against itself. That kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man. And whatever blasphemes they utter, whoever, uh, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, He has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. While I was in seminary, a friend of mine was the student body president. And shortly after being elected student body president, he had his plans and agendas laid out and took them straight to the top to Dr. Brian Chapel, who is still the president of Covenant Theological Seminary. And in to this meeting, maybe about 10 minutes, he realized that he had maybe made a mistake. He had come into the office. He was full of zeal and he had a great agenda ahead of him. And he was trying to, in a sense, manhandle Dr. Chapel to get the things that he wanted done, done. Dr. Chapel very graciously looked over to him after he got through with his long list of demands and said, have you taken these to the dean of students yet? And he realized he had already overstepped his bounds and that what he was doing was trying to force his way and force his agenda. And in a way, that's exactly what Jesus' family is doing here with him. They are trying to handle and manhandle Jesus. They have an agenda for him. He is not meeting their expectations and he is accused by them of being out of his mind. They have looked at his earthly ministry thus far, and what they see is evidence that somehow he has lost his mind. And now he is reflecting poorly on the family. And so they go to him wanting to retrieve him, collect him, maybe knock some common sense into him, and then allow him to go back out after he has seen clearly how he ought to conduct himself. Now, you may have a family member like this as well. 
the person that you speak about and say, well, he or she is just out of his mind. And maybe that's true. But in this case, what they fail to see is to see Jesus clearly as the Messiah. He seems to be out of touch to them. He's challenging all the authorities. He's stirring up controversy. There's a real. Now, Mark returns to the mother and the brothers later on in this passage in verses 31 down to 35. And in that particular passage, we see that his mother and his brothers come and stand outside of this great crowded house and they send for him and call to him so that they might forcefully take him. Now, the question is, what's the connection between Jesus's family coming for him and the scribes approaching Jesus to make accusations and Jesus responding in what seems to be so mysterious to us, a description of this unforgivable sin. Well, it's clear in the structure here that Mark first introduces the family of Jesus, accusing him of being out of his mind, returning to the family of Jesus, where they forcefully want to take him as if to say what is in between these two events is endemic characteristic of the situation with Jesus's family. In other words, they're tied together. There are parallels even in the charges that are made. Verse 21, they were saying he is out of his mind. Verse 30, for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. In other words, the way that Jesus's family approaches Jesus and the way that the scribes, his enemies, approach Jesus is basically one and the same. And both were designed to prevent Jesus from doing the work that had been given to him by his father. The scribes, by attempting to discredit Jesus and the family, by trying to control Jesus. So let me mention three things about this particular passage. First of all, the folly, the folly of attempting to discredit Jesus. Here we see in verses 22 down to 30 that there's a delegation that comes from Jerusalem. Jesus's ministry has attracted a lot of attention. And so naturally, maybe the Sanhedrin, in fact, sends a delegation of scribes up to Capernaum. They want to find out exactly what's going on with this Jesus character and what he is doing. And so we see in verse 22, the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying he is possessed by Beelzebul and by the prince of demons. He casts out demons. So here there are two formal charges that are made. One, that he is possessed by Satan himself. And two, that he's casting out demons by the power of Satan. Now, these men must have felt very confident in themselves. They've come from Jerusalem They're officials. They carry the weight of the Sanhedrin. And now they're going to tell the people how to really look upon Jesus. The people have been confused and clouded. They've seen a miracle worker. But let me tell you what the truth is about Jesus. And so in their smugness, they want to deal with Jesus and put him in his place. But Jesus has a surprise rebuttal for them. Verse 23, it says, He called them to him. Jesus has an accusation to make against them as well. And every attempt to discredit Jesus is going to reveal 
two things. Let me mention these quickly. One, inconsistency about our arguments. What he tells them in parables is this. He asks the question in verse 23. How can Satan cast out Satan? That seems illogical. If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. You might recall the bumper stickers that refer to house divided, whether it's a Clemson and Carolina rivalry. This type of thinking that somehow if there is a division in the house, the house will collapse. And that's what Jesus is referring to. He's saying, you're telling me that I'm casting out demons by the power of Satan. Well, if that's true, then the power of Satan is coming to an end. He goes on to say, if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. And so Jesus is showing the inconsistency about their accusations against him. That what they've claimed are not really true. That these truth claims are at odds with one another. And Jesus makes this very clear. Now, friends, there's always inconsistencies in the way in which we approach Jesus. Paul refers to this in Romans chapter 3 when he's indicting all of humanity in their sin. The reaction to that is one in which... People rebel. And he says in chapter 3, beginning in verse 5, if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? In other words, Paul, you're saying if my life is filled with sin and that glorifies God because of his judgment upon sin, well, then how can God judge me if it's glorifying him? In other words, they're inconsistent in their argument. Paul goes on to show that by saying, uh, as they ask the question, what that God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us by no means. For then how could God judge the world? They want to claim God has no right to judge me because my sin brings glory to him. By his judgment and that what there's hey, Paul goes on to say then is simply this. Well, if that's true, if God can't judge the world. Well, what's that say about your condemnation? Of the world, because you want me to judge the world. In other words, every time we come to God with some false truth claims, He reveals to us just how inconsistent those truth claims are. We see this all the time. People say, Well, God is a God of love. My, my God would never send anyone to hell. And yet, if you ask those people, what should happen to someone who murders someone that you love? What should happen to someone who rapes someone that you love? Well, there'd be a great outcry for justice, wouldn't there? See, so often we come to God with a sense of inconsistency about what we claim. And one or way or another, God will show us how our truth claims cancel each other out. Just as they have done here, we say things like, well, God wants me to take care of the things that he has given to me to be a good steward of them. So we end up not sharing them, but rather idolizing them. The Sabbath is made for man. It's made for me to enjoy so I can use it however I so choose. Or God has ordained to save the elect and therefore 
He doesn't need me to go out and witness to Christ. Do you see how easily we can become inconsistent towards God? Taking one claim of truth and working from that one claim many lies that actually lead us astray. And every effort to discredit Jesus' authority will be shown to have inconsistent truth claims. Here's really the purpose of having a, a consistent theology, of knowing the Scriptures well, of having a, a framework of the truth in our minds, so that when we make truth claims, we can begin to judge it according to the rest of the truth. Does that make sense? Is that wise? Is that really good? Is that really what God says to me? So that all our inconsistencies are weeded out and we begin to see God and His truth as it really is. Otherwise, the inconsistencies of our beliefs leave us loopholes. Leave us loopholes where then we can find a way to be our own authority. So one thing, they, this attempt to discredit Jesus reveals our inconsistency as Jesus reveals it. But secondly, it reveals our own condemnation. He says here in verse 27, no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods. He's speaking of Satan here unless he first binds the strong man. Now, this is a description of Jesus's ministry, that what he has come to do, according to the Apostle John, is to come into the world to destroy the works of the devil. You recall from Genesis chapter three, where Satan had tempted Adam and Eve and in doing so had, in a sense, overthrown God's rule over his own creation. God makes the promise that I will put enmity between you speaking to Satan and the woman between her offspring and your offspring. You will strike at his heel, but he will crush your head. You see, the work of Jesus is now a fulfillment of that great promise that he's come into the world to bind the strong man so that he might take back what the strong man has in his house. And what does the strong man have in his house? But all those who are deceived, all those who are living in sin, in other words, the entire world. And Jesus is saying, I've come to reclaim what is mine. In fact, all of the Old Testament images of the victories of God are mere shadows and symbols of this coming triumph that Jesus will have over Satan. Think of David and Goliath. That's a spiritual battle that's taking place. Because David says what? The battle belongs to the Lord. He will give great victory here today. Just as the Lord gives great victory through Christ to conquer the enemy that is Satan. And so this description of Jesus' ministry is laid forward. And then we have this account of this unforgivable sin that seems almost out of place in verse 28. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Now, this seems to be a little bit out of place to us. And we wonder, why is Jesus speaking of this unforgivable sin here? Well, I think the answer is given to us in verse 30 for in other words, here's the explanation 
of Jesus's proclamation about the unforgivable sin for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. In other words, what is in Jesus is demonic. In other words, the source of Jesus's power is demonic. So here you have this accusation that Jesus's ministry in the power of the spirit is really of the devil. And what he's saying is if you're so entrenched in rebellion against Christ that you accuse him of being of the devil, of being demonic, of his works being demonic. Well, if you continue in that, your sins will never be forgiven. But on the contrary, if you're able to bow to Jesus, your sins will be forgiven. Now, what has Jesus just done? He's turned the tables, hasn't he? Here are the scribes. Here they have come with their pride and they've said, let us lay the charges out in front of you to show you how we can discredit this Jesus. And now Jesus has just turned the tables and said, "Okay, if that's your view of me, then let me tell you, your sins will never be forgiven. You recall the story in the book of Esther, how Haman hated the Jews. And in the book, he builds this great set of gallows that he might kill all of the Jews in the in the city and in the kingdom. And Esther, who has uh, received uh, the the affection of the king, is a Jew. And eventually, at the end of the book, she pleads on behalf of her people. And the king says, now, who is this who wants to kill your people? And she says, it's Haman, that wicked servant of yours. And that very next day, guess who's hung on his own gallows? But Haman himself. What Jesus is saying, look, if you come to me with this kind of disposition, with this kind of distrust, with this kind of accusation, then let me tell you, it will lead to your own condemnation. And you will be hanged by your own words. Think of this. All God has to do when you stand before the judgment seat of God. All he has to do is pull out the record of your life. Pull out the record of all the words of judgment that you have spoken. In judgment of other people. In condemnation of other people. And press play on the recording. And listen to you judge other people for their lies. Listen to you judge other people for their hatred. And all he has to do is say, now, weren't you guilty of the same thing? And we will be hanged by our own words. So every attempt to discredit Jesus will eventually lead to the condemnation of those who seek to discredit. Now, I think the natural reaction of everyone who reads this passage is, well, have I committed the unpardonable or the unforgivable sin. It's sort of like the the syndrome of the first year medical student where they read through the textbook and there are all these various symptoms and all of a sudden they begin to feel these various symptoms and maybe I have that and maybe I have that and maybe I have this over here. And we read that and we wonder, is that true of me? And friends, let me just tell you, if you're asking that question, if you're sensitive to that question, then it's a good sign that you haven't committed that sin. That your desire really is to glorify Christ. 
that you don't want to commit such a sin that would break you away from any hope of salvation in Him. But let me also say this. Just because that's your disposition now, don't assume that that will mean forever that will be your disposition. There have been many people who have walked away from a profession of faith. Hold fast to Jesus. Submit to Him. Do not bring charges to discredit Him in your life. To discredit His authority over you. To somehow discredit His salvation in your life because you're so good you don't need it. But friends, continue to walk humbly with Him so that it might not lead to your own condemnation. Well, there's the folly of attempting to discredit Jesus. There's also the folly of attempting to dominate over Jesus. And that's really what we see here with Jesus' family. What we're told when Jesus and his mother and his brothers come to him in verse 31, they're standing outside, they have come to call him. This is really an act of unbelief. John tells us in John chapter 7 that Jesus' brothers had not yet believed in him. Talk about some sibling rivalry. Here's one who, who claims that he is the Son of God. Well, we're not really sure about you, Jesus. You're the family member that is a little bit odd and strange. And so they're coming to him out of disbelief. And it's out of that unbelief that they assume the right to then control Jesus, to dominate him, to manhandle him, to muzzle and rein him in. And we really see this take place in relation to the family. See, it's in the context of the family that these sort of things begin to take place. Jesus will disown those who do not trust in him, we are told. And they will no longer be a part of his family. Verse 34, looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. In other words, those who come to me in faith are my mother and my brothers. They are my family members. Jesus speaks of this again in chapter 8 when he says, Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in glory. In other words, rather than trying to control me, you need to be one who comes to me in faith. And then you will be welcomed into my family. Now their folly here stemmed from two wrong views of the family in relation to Jesus. And I want to say these shortly. The first wrong view is this, that the earthly family is more important than the family of God. That the earthly family is more important than the family of God. One way to look at this, I have uh, uh, some friends who were married just over a year ago. And the bride's family were not Christians. They came from a different religion. And they were not willing to sanction this particular wedding. So much so that they said, we will uh, protest and not attend the wedding at all. Why? Because she was marrying a Christian. Now that's one way in which people can set the family above the family of God by saying, our family we don't like that Jesus character and we will not submit to him. And if any of our family members do, we will we'll try to rein them in, much like Jesus' own mother 
and brothers. Now, that's to be expected from non-Christian parents. But even in the church, I think this can be a wrong assumption, too. I've known families who sent their son off to college and said things like, Now, son, you need to join X fraternity because that's the fraternity that the men in our family join. Regardless of the fact that that may actually lead to the unraveling of his faith. That's a way of setting the family and the family values above the family values of God and his particular ways of doing things in his family. There are other ways of doing that. Some of you have been willing to allow your own children to go serve on the mission field. That is a terribly scary thing to do. Some families would not go for that. They would say, now, now let's think about this before you go do something irrational. Let's think about this before you go halfway around the world and and serve God in this manner. Maybe he's got something better for you here. You see, that's a way of putting our family above the family of God. But there's another error in this, and that is to say that the earthly family is equivalent to the family of God. That the earthly family is equivalent to the family of God. That is to say that every member of the Christian family is automatically included in the family of God. Now, one of the great themes of the Bible is that everybody has a decision to make in relation to God. We see this at the very beginning. The book of Genesis uses the word seed or offspring over and over after Genesis chapter 3 to speak of two lines of offspring, the offspring of Satan, that is all those who are opposed to God and the offspring of of God, those who align themselves with him and the rest of the scriptures point to this decision as well. You see it in Psalm one, don't you? Blessed is the person who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of God and on it. He meditates a clear distinction there of two different paths to take. And that's true even in the church. We have a choice to make of what path we want to take. Jesus becomes the watershed point of everyone's life so that everyone will have to deal with him at some point, either in this life or in the life to come. And the choice is made either directly or indirectly that we choose directly and consciously to rebel against Jesus or to follow him, to trust in him or indirectly by Just being passive. Not making a clear decision. Because not making a decision is making a decision. Now I want to speak specifically to the younger students in our congregation for a moment. Because I think this is a very important point. Having been in college ministry a number of years, I've seen many students go off to college with the great assumption Because I'm from a Christian family, then I must be a Christian. Because I have done all the Christian activities. Because I've followed my family in doing all those Christian activities. 
Well, then that must mean I'm a Christian too. And what is Jesus saying here? He says, those who do the will of my Father, those are the people that I call brother and sister. Be very, very careful. Very careful that you don't fall into the trap of thinking just because you're born into a Christian family that you have all the rights of salvation. You still have a decision to make. And let me urge you to make that decision for Christ. Because you see, you cannot be connected to Jesus through anybody else. You can only be connected to Jesus directly by faith. It matters not if your parents are Christians, if your brothers and sisters are believers in Christ, if your grandparents are, if your cousins are. The only thing that matters in relation to your salvation is whether you trust in Jesus. That's why he makes this great warning about the unforgivable sin all the more important. Don't passively, don't passively assume that you're a believer. And in the end, commit the unforgivable sin, which is to consciously reject Jesus. All because you thought you had it. Because someone else believed. And so we see here this real folly of trying to dominate Jesus. But finally, let me mention this. We'll close with this. It's the wisdom of trusting Jesus. Verse 33 tells us, And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? It's a question that demands the understanding of wisdom, godly wisdom, to answer. What Jesus is wanting them to do is to look past the physical, to look past the earthly, and to see things spiritually as they really are. Just as the Israelites made the failure of assuming because they were Israelites, because they were earthly and physical children of Abraham, then they must be in the covenant of God. They must have salvation. And yet they were in the covenant by name only, not by genuine faith. John tells us to all who did receive Jesus, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. And when we trust in Jesus, then we are related to Him and a part of His family. A number of years ago, I knew a young, young man who came from a difficult family situation. And he struggled with the claims of Christ until one day, actually down, at, uh, down in Florida at the beach at a conference, he was willing to bow to Christ and trust in Him for his salvation. And I can remember having a discussion with this young man on the, on the deck of the pool overlooking the beach one evening. He said, you know, I don't know how my family is going to receive this. And I said, well, let me tell you something. They may not receive you because of Jesus, but you have a whole new family that will receive you. A family greater than your earthly family. A family larger than your earthly family. A family that will love you like your earthly family cannot love you. Because you see, to come to Jesus is to not only come to Him, 
But it's to come to all the others who have come to Him in faith too. And to be grafted in to His family in such a way that we are bound together spiritually, closer than you could ever be bound together physically to your family. God has given you to your earthly family for a short period. But the question is, what family do you belong to for all of eternity? Do you belong to the family of the father of lies? Or do you belong to the family of the good heavenly father? And he says there's great joy and blessing in trusting Jesus because the family of the God of God is the family of grace. Remember back in verse 20, 28, all sins will be forgiven the children of man. All those who come to Jesus and confess faith will receive forgiveness. They will receive mercy. It's a family of grace and mercy. And the Father will welcome those people in with great joy. So that now we will be bound together. Not by physical or uh, earthly heritage. But rather by a spiritual heritage. By the grace of of the gospel. A number of years ago, I heard a story, and let me conclude with this. It's about a pastor and teacher by the name of Robert Peterson. <clears throat> he shared his story of growing up at the PCA's General Assembly. <clears throat> he, admitted, he admitted that he had been conceived in the back of a car by uh, uh, his mother and an Air Force captain. He grew up with his sister and mother, and eventually his mother remarried a different Air Force officer, but while this officer was on duty, she would continue to adulterate with other men, so much so that she would actually even include the children in her escapades. Eventually, this Air Force officer that she married came home and found her with another man, and in a rage, he ended up killing her. Now, young Robert was taken away by the courts and he was put into an orphanage. He was so traumatized by his life growing up that he would wet the bed. And the way that they chose to discipline him was to wrap him in his urine-soaked sheets and put him in the quadrangle of the orphanage so that everybody could jeer at him and laugh at him, thinking that that would be the solution to his problems. Eventually, along come the Petersons. They were too old to adopt an infant, but they were allowed to look through the books to see if there was a, an older child that they would adopt. And eventually, they come to the picture of young Robert, and they said, we want to meet him. They took him out bowling, and Robert thought, well, if I could just bowl a strike, maybe they will love me. He said he bowled nine gutter balls in a row. They took him out for Chinese food. He thought, if I, could, if I could eat with chopsticks, they will think well of me. And he ended up spilling his whole plate into Mr. Peterson's lap. To his great surprise, they returned and adopted him. Sometime later, when he was in high school, some of the other students began to mock him and say, there, there's something different about you. You're, you're adopted. You're strange. There's something odd about you. And he came running home that day. And he found his mother. 
And he explained to her what happened. And he said, oh, Bob, she said, oh, Bobby, don't you understand? All those other children, they came the ordinary way. But see, you're special because you were chosen. And we have brought you into our family. And my friends, if you come to Christ, then you are welcomed into the family of God. And His eternal love is placed upon you. So that He could say of you, Welcome, my child. Welcome for all of eternity. Let us be careful this morning that we not reject the grace of the Lord Jesus and to fall into the folly of seeking to discredit Him at times or wanting to control Him and manhandle Him at times, rejecting His authority, but rather come to Him and trust Him and Him alone. And in that there is great joy. For to those people, all sins are forgiven. And you have the love, the eternal love of the Heavenly Father. Let's pray. Our great Heavenly Father, we do come to You this morning. We know that You and You alone can save by grace. We pray this morning that You would give to us real eyes to see, a real wisdom about us that comes to Jesus recognizing that only through faith in Him can we be forgiven of our sins and welcomed into the family of God. We pray that You would continue to give us that grace that each day we might trust You, holding fast to You and not presuming that we have entered into Your presence because of some earthly heritage, but rather through the only way, the only mediator between God and man, the Lord Jesus. And it's His name we pray. Amen.